Let's get our Bibles open to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. And we are in a series where we're looking at five crowns, five of them, that the New Testament mentions that are going to be rewards that Jesus will give to faithful followers. If you want these crowns, they are yours if you will walk with him in his power faithfully. Now, where do these crowns come from? The Greek word, by the way, for crown is stephanos. Stephanos. And it was the same crown. It's actually a wreath that victorious athletes in Rome and Greece, they would receive these. They would stand before what was called a bema seat. It was a raised platform. If they won their athletic event, then the emperor or the city magistrate would hand them a crown and only the victors would get the crowns. They had to earn it. They had to work for it. Well, we're going to be looking at a crown today that is greater than any crown a Greek or Roman athlete could ever have received. The crown we're going to look at today, friends, it can change your life. It's called the crown of righteousness. Now hear this warning. You ready? Everybody listening? This crown, I think, will be rarely received by modern American Christians. I'm going to tell you why as I work through this message. But here's our passage, and I'm going to ask you to stand. So if you can stand right now, we're in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. If you do not have your Bible, then I don't know what is the reason for that. You should have your Bible. You're at church, for goodness sake. You should bring your own Bible. If you do not own a Bible, and everybody look at me for a minute. If anybody does not own a Bible and you will seriously read it, you will seriously begin to study it, I will give you a Bible for free. Okay? That's a promise. But if I give you that Bible for free, I'm going to be asking you every week, are you reading the Bible? And I hope and expect your answer is yes. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Now let's read it. I'm going to read out loud. You follow along. And this is the Apostle Paul writing to a young man, young pastor named Timothy. Verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that capital D day. Look at your text. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. All right, now you may be seated, and now we get to unpack this. Now we get to learn what God's Word says. Amen, Brian. Here we're going to learn what God's Word has to say for us. And let me give you a little, bit of, a little bit of understanding of this book, all right? This is 2 Timothy. This is a letter. Paul writes it to a young pastor of a very difficult church, the church at Ephesus. And this is the very last letter in the Bible that Paul will write 
He's about to be martyred. He he wrote at least 13 books, maybe 14 Hebrews. Nobody really knows. But he wrote 13 definite books in the New Testament, 13 of the 27. This is his final one. He's about to die. He's about to be killed. He's about to have his head cut off by a sword under the reign of Nero. He writes it to Timothy. It's his fellow laborer, partner in ministry, many, many years. And Paul says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. What does that actually mean? Now listen, there's going to be a time for every one of us, should Jesus Christ tarry. Let's just be real. Let's be really honest and real with ourselves. For every one of us, should Jesus Christ tarry, there's going to be a time where you will utter your final breath, your final comment. You will breathe your last. I'm not trying to be morbid, but I am trying to get you to think. I'm trying to get you to think soberly. Paul knows he's about to breathe his last. He says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. What does that actually mean? Well, to a Jewish person, To a Jewish person, they would understand. Jewish worshipers, they would come and they would offer an animal on the sacrifice, on the altar, a priest would do it. They would bring their animal to a priest. The worshiper, that would be you, Jewish man or woman, if you were Jewish back in the Old and Early New Testament, you would bring your animal, you would kill your animal. The priest would collect its blood now, here's how that looked. And again, I'm not trying to be more, but I'm trying to get you inside the heart of Paul. Here's what's going to happen. The priests are holding down the animal because you just slit its throat. And out of its carotid artery, either the left or the right or both, it's going to start pumping its blood, its life. Now, here's what's going to happen. Every beat of the heart of that animal is going to put more blood out of it. They collected it in a bowl. Now, this is hard to hear, right? But watch, this is what's going to happen. It's going to be struggling, that animal, but it will begin to struggle less and less and less because more and more and more of its blood is leaving its body until finally it lies down still and dies. Now, again, I'm not trying to over-dramatize this. This is really what's behind Paul's saying. I am already being poured out as a drink offering. My life is ebbing out of me. I can feel it. I am coming to the end of my life. Death is nearing. And he was about to be poured out in the ground. You see, this is what they would do. They would sacrifice an animal. Now, listen. And then the Jewish worshiper would take a little bit of red wine. It was always red. And they would pour it out, or the priest would pour it out before the altar. Paul says, I'm like that wine. The sacrifice has already been done. The animal has already been sacrificed. Now, God, my high priest, is pouring me out before the altar. I can feel the end of my life coming. I am being poured out as a drink offering. Now watch, I told you all of that to get to this. There's not a trace of fear anywhere in 2 Timothy. Well, here's a man that knows his death is approaching and there's not a trace of fear. And here's why. 
He had fought the good fight. He finished what Hebrew says, the race that was set before him. God had given to Paul an assignment. He completed it, and he knew God was bringing him home. In fact, Acts chapter 13, verse 36 says something that you will want to pay attention to. It says, for David, King David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. That's a euphemism for he died. David had run God's race. He had fought the good fight. And when he was done, when he accomplished everything that God had set out for him to do, God brought him home. Now, Christian, I want you to hear something. And this is not true for you who are here who will not bend your knee to Christ. And I know there's some of you. You can tell it in your attitude during worship. You do know that, right? You can tell in your attitude during our worship those who are belligerently refusing to bend your knee to Christ. That's why Matthew said what he said when he led the worship. So let's just understand there's some of you who are defiant. You are a cosmic rebel. You are not willing to bend your knee for Christ. Listen, that's where you are. That's your choice you're making. That's your dilemma, to be honest with you. But for the Christian, I want to tell you something. The moment that you complete the race that God has marked out for you, he set the distance, he set the boundary, he even set how you're to run it. When you complete the race, when you fulfill the purposes of God in your life, he's going to bring you home immediately. I'm telling you, you will not outlive God's purposes for your life. Do you know why? Because he would rather have you with him. He wants to reward you. And if you're really walking with the Lord and you're not mired in the worldliness as so many modern American Christians are or people are, you want to be with the Lord. You don't want to be with the Lord by your own hand. Let me just say briefly and powerfully and clearly, suicide is not the option. It is nowhere sanctioned in the Bible. Only God has the right to give life and take it away. If you get to that point, my friends, where you are wanting to end your life, cry out to us. We are here for you. We will love you well, but you got to be honest. The Apostle Paul had this really weird tension throughout his life. Look at it up on the screen. He said this, we would rather be away from the body. In other words, I don't want to live any longer because I want to be at home with the Lord so whether we are at home with the Lord or away from him and here in our body, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. See, what enabled Paul to finish the race, what, what helped him fight the good fight and keep the faith, it was knowing what was coming. Do you know that? It was knowing the future. That we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done. 
So we've got Paul writing in this great letter to Timothy. His eyes are on the prize. He says to Timothy, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that judgment day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now let's break this down a little bit because I want you to want the crown of righteousness, but you can only get it one way. And I'm about to make that really clear. It's the crown of righteousness. But what is righteousness? Most of us don't use this word very often. Righteousness is a gift. You must receive it. You cannot take it. You must be given it. You cannot go out and buy it. Righteousness is given by God in his grace. It is undeserved. And he gives it to everybody who will bend their knee to Jesus as their Savior and their Lord. If you trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you give him your life, he will gain, he will give to you righteousness. That's not how you get the crown of righteousness. I'm going to get to that. But I got to make this a little more clear. Nobody, now listen, everybody look at me. No one makes themselves righteous. But what precisely is righteousness? Well, let me define it for you. It's the state of being morally upright. And the crown of righteousness is the symbol of the eternal state of being morally upright. So everybody in heaven who is given the crown of righteousness, that will be a symbol that God made them righteous the moment they put their faith in Jesus. But there's more. Hold on to this one. No one is going to receive this crown who depends on their own works to save them. There is no self-righteous head that will ever wear the crown of righteousness. And this crown belongs on the brow of those who abandon their own righteousness, who realize their spiritual sinfulness, who know they have been given what they have not deserved. That's the symbolism of this crown. Now watch, this is the most important thing I'm going to tell you so far at least in understanding what this crown is. That's the symbolism of the crown, what I just shared. But it's only given, listening, it's only given to the Christian who longs for the return of Jesus. You got it? You want this crown? You got to long for the return of Jesus more than anything else. God has declared, Christian, you to be righteous now through faith in Jesus who took your sins away. Now you begin to long for his return. Why? Because you are struggling, what I would tell you, between two appearings. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Two appearings or comings of Jesus. Now, I'm going to ask you to think. I know you don't come to church to think, right? This time I'm going to ask you to think. In fact, you always should think. Look at the screen behind me. Really look at it. Come on now, bend your minds to understand this. Because you see the word appear twice in this, ver in this passage. 
You've got two different appearings. For the grace of God has appeared. That's Jesus. He came to this earth. And he brought salvation for all people. He's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope. Here's the other one. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what it means. Jesus came once and he will come again. You and I live in the in-between. We live between the two appearings. And when he comes again, he's going to bring with him rewards. But right now we live between his two appearings. And right now he's training us for godliness. He's helping you battle. He's helping me battle my sinful desires. Now here's the cool thing about walking with Jesus. Now if you're walking with Jesus closely, you are no doubt experiencing this. You just might not have put it to these words. Every one of us here, let's be super, super honest. Every single one of us are struggling with sin, me included. You know you've got sins in your life that are strongholds. You hate them. You want to overcome them. You don't ever want to commit them again, yet you find that you keep committing them. You've got sins. Maybe they're sins of your tongue where you keep gossiping. You keep criticizing. You keep judging. You keep slandering. And you're, you know God hates it. You know it breaks his heart. You're trying to stop, but you cannot quite get over the hump on these sins. Maybe your sins are sexual. Let's be really clear. All, all sexuality is meant to be enjoyed only in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. Any sin or any sex outside of it, whether that's pornography or lusting or sexual talk or sexual acts, anything outside of marriage between a man and a woman is sin. Sexual activity between two women, sexual activity between two men is clearly sin. Don't believe the world. Don't let the world deceive you. You see, we live in the in-between the two appearings, and we are struggling with sin. And I could list, if you want to come talk to me, I'll tell you what I struggle with. I'm pretty real. But I'm also going to ask you what you're struggling with so I can pray for you. This is where we're at. And the grace of God is working in us. And Jesus is coming again. Now, let me tell you what the secret to battling sin can be found in the crown of righteousness. You ready? Now, listen to this. Those who long for the appearing of Jesus will have increasing victory over sin. 
Those who long for the appearing of Jesus will have a determination to be found faithful when he comes. Do you know that there will be no warning when Jesus comes? You will hear a loud trumpet and all of a sudden he will appear in the sky. He's not going to give you 24-hour notice. He's not going to let you clean up your act. What you are doing in that moment is what he will see you doing when he comes. And if you long for his appearing, you are going to want to have a determination to be found faithful when he comes. It will dislodge a love for the Lord's return. It will dislodge your fear of death. You know you fear it. You know even if you don't fear death, you fear dying. It will dislodge that fear of death. It will help you have the endurance of Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He kept his eyes on the future and he was able to get through the crucifixion. It will alter, it will alter your perspective in suffering. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So if you're suffering, if you keep your eyes on the appearing of Jesus, it will reduce your suffering to a manageable degree because you know this is an eye blink on this earth and you've got all of eternity of blessing and bliss. See, this is the life of the one who loves the appearing of Jesus, who longs for his return. Now, let's get really on the same page. If you've been listening to the three previous sermons in this series, including this one, you're probably a little unsettled. That's one of the feedback points I keep getting. Oh, my friends, if you and I could just see the purity of the teachings and life of Jesus, we would be reduced to grief. It is so far greater than what we do. If you want to receive the imperishable crown week one, then you must bring your body and its desires under control by the power of God that struggles within you. If you don't bring your body under control, you will not receive and you will not be rewarded with the imperishable crown. If you want to be rewarded with the crown of rejoicing, then you've got to faithfully share the good news of Jesus with unbelievers all around you. If you don't tell people about Jesus, you will never receive the crown of righteousness. And if you want to have the crown of life, then you've got to love Jesus more than you love your own life. You've got to cling to him in faith, even in your trials, even in your storms in life, even in tribulations, even if it comes to the point of your death. That's the only way you're going to get the crown of life. And you might be uncomfortable hearing this. You might even be a little angry. You might be bothered, but know that the grace of God unleashed in your heart, it can give you victory over your sins. It can bring your body under control. It can give you the courage to boldly share the gospel. It can cause your love for Jesus to exceed all other loves. That's what his grace does when it's unleashed in your heart. And that same grace, hear me, that same grace 
can keep your eyes to the skies looking for his return with a determination to be found faithful when he comes. All right, but I told you, do you remember? I told you that I don't think too many modern American Christians are going to get this crown. And the words that Paul says next in 2 Timothy chapter 4 will give you the insight of that. And here's what he says. Do your best to come to me soon. Now listen, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Demas, who was in love with this world, deserted the gospel. He was Paul's partner in ministry. He abandoned him. Why? Because like so many modern Christians, and often me included, he loved the things of this world more than he loved Jesus, just like Judas. He was worldly. And maybe in Demas, what that looked like was a love and a pursuit of money. Or maybe it was a love of comfort or fame or security or beauty or ease. Whatever it was, it was for Demas a deadly condition and it will be for you as well. For the Bible says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now I want you to listen carefully because this crown is on the line with what I'm about to tell you. If you love the world and you are chasing after it for your happiness and satisfaction and you are pursuing what this world offers for your fulfillment, you cannot love Christ's appearing and you will not gain this crown and it will be a deadly condition and not only will you give up receiving this crown, John said you cannot be saved. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do you not see, brother and sister, Demas exchanged what could have been eternal honor for short-term happiness, and it proved the tragedy in his life. Well, where are you at with the worldliness? I've been asking myself all week, where am I at with worldliness? Do you love Jesus more than the world? Are you longing for the return of Jesus? Listen, that's a super easy one to answer. Do you long for the return of Jesus where, when he will right all the wrongs, when he will fully restore the wonder and the beauty of creation, when he will purge forever every rebellious desire of sin from your heart? Are you looking to the skies now throughout the day, making sure that he finds you faithful, catalyzed, galvanized by an overarching desire to be with Jesus in glory with the one that you love more than anything? any other do you really really love and long for the return of Jesus you know that which you love you will think about 
And that which you love most, you will think about most. So it's very, really, it's very easy to answer this question if you really do long for Jesus' return. Do your thoughts return to him throughout the day? Just like they do for the people that you love. Has your soul learned to sing with David as a deer pants and longs for the water brook? So I pant and long for you, O God. Does your soul pant for God? Does it long for God? Does your inner self thirst for God, for the living God? Are you asking God, when shall I come and behold the face of God? In other words, when are we going to be together? When are you coming? When will you be here? It consumes my day. The one who is consumed with a longing for the return of Jesus, most fundamentally, most primarily because you just want to be with him, that one will receive this crown. You know, there are some, I'm going to give you a little bit of a glimpse into the future, okay? I'm going to take you after human history is done. I'm going to bring you before the great white throne judgment. But I got to correct, I think, if I can, if you would let me, I got to correct some of your thinking because like me, a lot of you grew up, whether you know it or not, being taught the dispensational view of the future. And the dispensational view of the future is three judgments. I'm telling you, I don't think that's true. And there are some who believe and teach that the future great white throne judgment is only for unbelievers. And it will be their sentencing for an eternity in hell. And yes, I would tell you, unbelievers will be there, but there will also be believers there. And I'm gonna show you this from the word of God. And for believers who are gathered before this throne, your names will be written in the book of life and your lives will be examined for your rewards. But for unbelievers, now listen, for anybody in here who will not yet bend their knee to the Lord, if you die in your unbelief, here's your future. Your names will not be written in that book. You would not believe in Jesus. You would not submit to him. Your life will be examined and you will be found guilty and you will be in eternity in hell. That's your future. If you choose to die a rebel against God, that's your future. You don't need to die a rebel to God. You can believe in him. But here's a great white throne judgment. Look it up on the screen. Then I saw a great white throne. And him who was seated on it, it is Jesus, And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Nobody will have anything to hide behind trying to escape the holy gaze of Jesus. You will not hide. And I saw the dead, great and small, those who were famous in this life and wealthy and those who were poor and nobody ever knew their names, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, plural, according to what they had done. 
And the sea gave up the dead, those sailors who died in the ocean. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades, those who died long ago and were in the grave. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them. They were brought back to life and judged according to what they had done. Listen, if your name is not found in the book of life, then another book is going to be opened and you're going to be judged according to what you did. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That's hell. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Now listen to this. And if anyone's name in that great throng of human beings who everybody that's ever lived before that great throne, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Do you see what John's saying? John wrote this. He saw a vision of this in heaven. And he was given permission to write it down for you and for me. And he said, there's going to be every human being that's ever lived gathered before that throne. And there will be believers there whose names are in the book of life. And those whose names are not, other books are going to be open. And those books will actually damn those who would not believe. But the other books that are open, Christian, for you and for me, they will determine your rewards. On that day, please hear me, it will not be time for the sentencing of the Christians. You are already secure in your salvation. It will be the time of your reward. And the faithful in Christ who lived in this life faithfully will gain rewards for eternity. And those rewards, five of which might be your crowns, they will be your means of throwing them down for eternity before God. They are your way of giving glory and praise and honor to the one who is worthy of it all. So I want you to imagine something as I close. Whether you want to be or not, you will be in that great throng before that great white throne judgment. Everyone will be. And I want you to imagine that in this life, you bent your knee and you bowed your soul before Jesus and you trusted him for the forgiveness of your sins. You came to him as your Lord and Savior. And once you are in front of that throne, you will hear your specific name called. And it will be called by the lips of Jesus himself. And he will call you to his throne Because your name is in the book of life, he will open up books that have chronicled everything you have ever done on earth. And they will reveal to everyone there that the longing to be with Jesus dominated your heart's desires or they didn't. And that longing squeezed out your love for this world. It gave you the strength to battle against your sin. It even began to overcome your fear of death and dying. And your heart longed for the day of his return. And when you no longer grieve in your heart over sin, 
And he will say to you, because you long for his return, well done, good and faithful servant. And he will place that incredible crown on your head. That's your future. If by his grace you begin to long for his return more than you love the world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Father, thank you, Lord, for Paul's ministry and Paul's example. Lord, who did long for your return, who did know that he would receive this unbelievable crown, the crown of righteousness. Lord, thank you that he is saying that not only will he receive it, but everyone who longs for your return will receive it. And Lord, I pray for every person in here, Lord, for every one of the Christians, God, that you would build in all of us, me included, a longing so great for your return that it squeezes worldliness out. And it gives us the strength to battle against sin. And it overcomes the fear of death. But Father, I want to also pray for those who might be here. They're my friends, God, and they may not know you. They may not yet have bent their knee to you. God, would you please show them your love? Would you show them your love? Lord, you died for them. You made a way for them to be saved. You do not delight in the death of the wicked. You will never put anybody into hell with a smile on your face. Ever. You made a way. And it's through Jesus and his death and resurrection. If there is anybody here who has not yet put their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, would you let them cry out, Father, would you save me through Jesus? Let that be what happens today. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.